Good morning, everyone. This morning we are in John 10, verses 1 through 21. So I'll give you a second to get there, and should also be up behind us shortly. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep by the gate, the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not know or they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Amen. If you would remain standing, and we're going to pray together. The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, if you know it, let's pray together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen, amen, amen. You can have a seat. We are in our Gospel of John series. And we find ourselves in John chapter 10 this morning. A very famed piece of scripture about Jesus being our good shepherd. And the two big takeaways for me this morning that I want to pass along to you from our John chapter 10 passage is first of all number 1 sheep need a shepherd sheep need a shepherd and number 2 and we'll look at these as we go along your soul reflects your shepherd your soul reflects your shepherd so this passage is full 
of 2,000-year-old Mid-Eastern shepherd, ag barn, uh, out-in-the-farm analogies. Things that I'm not very acquainted with, having grown up in Southern California in the 80s and 90s in a suburban neighborhood. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't come around many sheep or many farms. It wasn't until I turned about 15 years old, my parents, shock of my life, moved me out to the wilds of Southern Oregon that I finally got in touch with farm animals and all of that. When I landed, my very first job, my very first paying job, aside from doing chores at home, I was a llama farmer. Yes, I worked on a llama ranch. I took care of llamas, hundreds of llamas on this big old ranch in Williams, Oregon. Let me tell you, uh, my job was to shovel manure and give water and hay to this spitting llama. And uh, one of my favorite things I got to do was pull the manure vac. Yes, there's manure vacs. I didn't know about this. They don't have them where I'm from. Um, but they, they have these manure vacs that I, I drove, uh, hauled it around the back of an ATV and got out and just sucked llama poop up in the pasture. Um, I lasted about three months at that job till finally the ranch manager pulled me aside and said, you might want to consider a different line of work. And that was the last time I've ever interacted with a farm animal, um, to which I'm very grateful. Uh, so that, that said, um, if we're going to understand the relationship, though, that Jesus is using in metaphor between a sheep and shepherd, it's all throughout the scriptures. We're going to have to go back in time to uh, the world of the ancient Mideastern animal husbandry world. So again, welcome to the Ag Barn. Um, we began, though, with shepherds and understanding the role, the very important role of a shepherd in the day in which Jesus was talking about this uh, to this listening audience. A Mideastern shepherd was very different than a rancher in the United States today. Um, it was a very different kind of a relationship. In the Mideast, a shepherd in Jesus' time was someone who basically would live with their sheep. Uh, and they were everything of their sheep. They were provider, protector, and guide for their sheep. And so to our first point from John chapter 10, the first thing we want to consider is number one, sheep need a shepherd. Uh, during certain times of the year, um, when maybe it was a little hotter out and there wasn't as much to eat for the sheep, a shepherd would have to take his sheep out into the Judean wilderness in search for green pastures. Now it's likely, many scholars tell us, uh, that the shepherd would actually go out ahead of time before summer had come and have been preparing a plot of land, uh, watering it, seeding it for green pasture for his sheep uh, later on as the summer months ensued to go and eat. But, but all that to say is the shepherd at a certain time would have to take his sheep and, and go out and search for the green pastures in order to feed the sheep and sustain their lives. And during which time, the shepherd would no longer be living in the village and sleeping in his own bed, but he would be out at night with the sheep, during which time the sheep would be put up in several of these little sheep pens that were scattered throughout the Judean hillside and villages. Um, there's actually a several different ways that those were constructed. Very basic four walls made out of stone and sometimes even brush. There's a couple of pictures for you, this simple stone structure of a, a, what like a sheep pen, a sheep fold would look like. 
Um, and as they were out in the Judean wilderness, they became even more primitive. And uh, this next picture is of, uh, if you can see that, um, it's just basically sticks. And this was essentially the language that Jesus is using. Uh, notice here in verse 7, he says, Jesus said, I am the gate of the sheep. And so uh, frequently, a shepherd during the journey of sheep through the Judean wilderness at, in, in the evening time would actually literally become the doorway at the entrance so that two things, no sheep would get out without the shepherd's notice and no predators would be able to come in. Anyone who came in or out would have to go over the body of the shepherd. And so when Jesus says, I'm the gate of the sheep, think he's saying about our lives to us, his sheep, I am your entrance and exit. Uh, the writer of Revelation in his letter to the church at Philadelphia, said about Jesus, he holds the key of David. He shuts a door and no man opens it. He opens a door and no man can close it. And he told the church at Philadelphia, Before, behold, I, I set before you an open door. And the idea here is that Jesus is saying essentially as, as it concerns his good shepherding over our lives, that he is the gate, he is the entrance and the exit, that nothing comes in or out of my life that does not first pass by my good shepherd, Jesus. So when Jesus says, I'm the gate of the sheep, that is essentially what he's saying. I am providentially, carefully watching over the affairs of your life. I am your shepherd. Um, now, if you know anything about sheep, it's very almost insulting that uh, the illustration for those of us who follow Jesus is that of sheep, because sheep aren't the most intelligent of creatures. They're actually rather helpless creatures, if you know anything about them. Sheep have no natural defenses, like many animals. They can't run fast, climb a tree. They don't have uh, flesh-ripping teeth or poison that shoots out of their body. They really can't defend themselves. The best and only defense of a sheep against predators is a good shepherd. Without a shepherd, sheep will be victim to all the elements around them. Um, especially the sheep in which Jesus is referring to, which we would call domestic sheep. Um, the type raised in ancient Israel um, on most of the farms were these domestic sheep that could not survive on their own. Now, most animals, when you think of the animal kingdom, are wild. We've domesticated a few animals, some dogs, some cats, and even some horses. Some people have goats and pigs. But, but for the most part, even those animals that we've domesticated, if given the chance could probably, if they escape from the care of your home, could make it out on their own. We've got a cat out in the backyard. She is wild. Um, her name is Echo, and I like her out on the back porch because she kills the rats, but she doesn't come inside because I'm allergic. Um, she could survive without us. She appreciates the fact that we put a food dish out there, but she doesn't need us. She's been surviving like that for a long time. But when, when we talk about the domestic sheep, um, sheep don't go wild. If a sheep is released out into the wild, it dies because it cannot take care of itself. If a rancher loses a horse, he gets a wild horse. If a shepherd loses a sheep, that's a dead sheep because sheep have no sense of direction. They'll, they'll, they'll get so lost and confused, they literally don't even know what to eat. They'll, they'll go ahead and eat poisonous things unless there's someone there, to a shepherd there, to, to guide them away from what's not helpful. Uh, another thing that happens to sheep, and it's actually a biblical term, 
Um, in the Psalms, David says about his own soul, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? It's actually a condition that sheep can find themselves in where they get turned over on their back like a turtle and they cannot, because of their fluffiness, turn themselves over at a time when their wool is fur, or their, their wool is full, what I meant. They're on their backs and they can't turn over and they're subject to all the elements. And so uh, Jesus uses this perfect analogy to say, you need me. You need a shepherd. And one of the criteria for us to be able to follow our good shepherd Jesus is to acknowledge that he must become everything to us if we're going to be his followers. Because a Mideast shepherd was everything to his sheep. Without him, they don't make it. And, and we have to come to that place in our lives where we admit and agree to the conditions of this relationship we have with Jesus, that he is shepherd, we are his sheep, and he must be everything to us if we're going to accept his shepherdhood in our lives. But the assault on our pride comes to admit that we aren't self-sufficient, self-sustained, that we cannot make it on our own, that in so many ways we're like sheep. And, and Jesus says about himself many things here, but a few that we can look back over about the relationship that he has with us is, is one, in verse 3, the sheep listen to the good shepherd's voice and he calls his own sheep by name. The good shepherd, verse 11, verse 17, verse 18, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, the good shepherd knows his sheep and his sheep know him. Jesus would later say, I'm the vine, you're the branches, without me you can do nothing. Now very few people when asked, would be able to admit, especially in, in the, the world that we live in, the, the, the United States and a very independent part of the, the world, um, most people pride themselves on not needing anything or anyone, but being fully self-sufficient and self-sustained. But in order to be a follower of Jesus, it requires an element of humility. The kind of humility that says, Jesus, without you I can't do it. I need you like a sheep needs a shepherd. I'm defenseless without you. I'm helpless without you. Jesus, I need you. And it's that level of humility that is often a great obstacle for many men and women to come to faith in Jesus. It's our own self-pride that doesn't want to admit our need and give up control over to Jesus that we might follow Him. Um, and I think that one of the things that is often in error is our understanding of the word humility. When you think humility, I think oftentimes it's associated with self-deprecation, with a low self-esteem, with, with pushing off all compliments and encouragements. If anybody says anything complimentary about you, you're supposed to say, ah, shucks, and kick the dirt and keep your, your eyes to the ground kind of thing. But that isn't really biblical humility. Thomas Aquinas, when speaking of the virtue of Christian humility, referred to humility as recognizing the truth about yourself, which includes your limitations and your gifts. So, so really, Christian humility is to recognize the truth about ourselves, that I have limitations, but I also have gifts. I'm, I'm good at some things, and I'm not good at others. I have needs. Uh, I'm not perfect. I'm not complete. I, I'm, I don't stand by myself very well. C.S. Lewis refers to humility, though, as self-forgetfulness. I like this. And he writes in screw tape letters on this virtue of humility. By this virtue, that is humility, 
as by all others, God wants to turn our attention away from self to Him and to our neighbors. So humility, rather, is not a matter of thinking less of ourselves, but thinking about ourselves less and looking outward and turning to others outwardly in love. And so the requirement for us to be able to follow Jesus is humility. If you struggle with pride, which we all do in some form, that is the thing that must be laid down. Because the Bible says that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. That God lifts up the humble. And so to be those who recognize our nature as sheep, as Jesus put it, we must recognize our need for good shepherds. So in the ears of those that were listening to Jesus talk, they would fully understand this point that when we talk about the relationship of God as shepherd to sheep, there is a desperation and a I need the shepherd in order to survive. And so point one takeaway in John chapter 10 is simply that sheep need a shepherd. But, but secondly, and maybe most importantly, your soul reflects your shepherd. To say it this way, the condition of your soul is an indication of who your shepherd is. So if I were to ask you today, kind of a philosophical question, something like, how's your soul? You're like, I don't even know how to answer that question. Well, how are you doing? Well, I'm pretty angry right now. Or I'm pretty discontent right now. I'm pretty sad right now. I'm pretty happy. I'm, you know, how, what's the condition of your soul? Where are you right now? Because your soul is a reflection of your shepherd. Because it is the shepherd's job to watch over your soul, then the condition of your soul is a reflection of who is shepherd over your life. David said in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. I am not in want or have my needs met. Psalm 23, verse 1. When Jesus is my shepherd, it's reflected in the condition of my soul. In John chapter 10, you may have noticed that Jesus says there are alternate shepherds. There are other influences on the sheep. It's not just good shepherd who influences the sheep. Jesus begins to talk about other influences that influence sheep. Thieves and robbers. The hired hand. The wolf. And, and as Jesus talks about those, we must be aware that the condition of our soul is in direct correlation to the level of Jesus' shepherdhood in our lives. Because you can't live an unshepherded life, an uninfluenced life. Even though you might think you are not being influenced, we are all being influenced. And it's not always the influence of the Good Shepherd. Jesus brings up three other shepherds, so to speak, or influencers on the life of sheep, on the soul of men and women. The first category is that of the thief. And I'm sure you can imagine who this illustrates. Jesus said something almost exactly similar to what he says about the thief here in John 10. Notice verse 10, he says, The thief comes to do what? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus said the same thing about Satan in John chapter 8. That he's a murderer and has been so from the very beginning. That he's a liar and when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. And so there is one called the prince of the power of the air, or as the Bible describes him, the god of this world, Satan, the devil, our adversary. Satan is real. 
and he has an influence. And he is an alternate shepherd, if you would. He is another influence. And Jesus says, one of the ways you'll know that it is not the shepherd coming into your life is that he enters in a different way than through the gate. He does not come the way. See, Jesus said, I'm the gate of the sheep. So, so all who've come other ways are not the shepherd. And I think when we think of Satan, though, we have this weird uh, medieval Dante's Inferno view of you know pitchforks and flames, and that is not the proper view of what Satan is like. Read Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel describes Satan, the king of Tyre, which is most think uh, a representation, a metaphor of Satan, who was in the Garden of Eden from the beginning. He's called the anointed cherub. He's talked about as a very beautiful being. See, Satan is not ugly. He's attractive. He's seductive. I mean, something like pitchforky, chainsaw, bloody chainsaw massacre, I, I go, that's evil. But Satan, Paul the Apostle said, sometimes comes disguised as an angel of light. In other words, he's attractive, but he's an alternate shepherd. He's a thief and a robber, and though he might come in a way that seems attractive, he's coming in an alternate way. He's hopping over the wall. He's not come through the gate, Jesus. He's not proclaiming Jesus as the way. And in that, we must, we must watch the influence of Satan on our lives. He's a thief and a robber. He's come to kill, steal, and destroy. Now, Satan, as you probably know, unlike God, does not have the quality of omnipresence. That is, he can't be everywhere at once. Satan can't be here and then across the street at that church and then down the road uh, somewhere else and harass. So he has demons that, that are active in the world. Read Ephesians chapter 6. There is a really real spiritual world. But another thing you have to remember that Satan, because he's not omnipresent, he can't be everywhere, he has built up infrastructures that represent him in the world. Culture is affected by the God of this world, Satan. So there are so many ways in which the thief and the robber influence our lives. And if Jesus isn't our good shepherd, our soul can be managed by or, or handled by or influenced by a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But then he brings up the, the next potential influence and this is the one that Jesus refers to as the hired hand. Look at verse 12. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So he's got very little skin in this game. So when he sees a wolf coming, when danger arises, he abandons the sheep and runs away. The man runs away, verse 13, because he's a hired hand and he doesn't care for the sheep. Now, who is the hired hand a reference to? Because understand, this is all a metaphor. We're not talking about a farm. Jesus is talking about something far bigger than a farm. Although these are all elements of what would happen in a Mideastern farm or sheep scenario. But Jesus isn't talking about that. He's saying this represents this. This physical reality that y'all 2,000 years ago would understand represents something else. The thief, Satan, and then there was the hired hand, which probably most scholars say represented the false religious leaders in Jesus' day. But I think it could also be well suggested that the hired hand could be used as a metaphor for what we call in the church the world 
and its influence on our souls. Now, growing up in church, I, I heard the term world all the time, and I was a high school youth pastor, so we would always talk to the high school kids and not, about not being in the world or not being worldly. But we never really explained what that meant because I don't hate the world. I love the world. I love the planet. So when we talk about the world, we're not talking about the planet itself. When we talk about the world, we're not talking about the people who make up the planet. So we're not called to diss the planet or diss people. But listen to what John says as it concerns the world's influence. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. The Greek word is cosmos. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. But again, we're, the reference here is not physical world or the people of the world, but rather this this world being used by John is the world's system. The system set up by Satan that is antagonistic toward the Lord. The Unger's Bible Dictionary defines world in these terms. The whole mass of unregenerate men alienated from God, hostile to Christ, and organized governmentally as a system or federation under Satan. I would say that the world in your life, the world system, that, influence, that, that system influenced by Satan is a hired hand in this way. They won't be there when you need them. It won't be there when you need it. The system, the way of the world, it will let you down when the wolf comes, when trouble comes, because you don't belong to it. And so Jesus says, make sure that the shepherd of your soul is not the thief, the robber, or the hired hand because they won't be there when you need them. And then finally, notice Jesus says there's also the wolf. This wolf represents false teachers. Verse 12 again, the wolf attacks the flock and does what? Verse 12, scatters it. And all throughout the New Testament letters, the metaphor of wolves is used as reference to false teachers. And I want to have you look at something that Paul said in a farewell speech he gave to some elders at Ephesus concerning wolves in the church, the influence of wolves in the sheep pen. Acts chapter 20, it'll be up on the screen, I believe, verses 28 to 31. Paul says to these leaders in the church, these elders in the church, these under-shepherds under the chief shepherd, the good shepherd Jesus, Paul says, keep watch over yourselves to the elders. And all the flock, the church, which the Holy Spirit has made you to be overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which He bought with His own blood. I know, Paul said, after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Your soul's condition will be directly affected by the influences and the shepherds that you allow to shepherd you. So can I say, can we say, like David, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't want anything. That can't always be said about me. There are times when I'm allowing other influences to affect my soul. And the million dollar question for us 
this morning is who determines this? How we're shepherded. Is, is it God's initiative or is it our initiative? Is this something I must do or is this something God does? The answer, of course, is yes. Um, Jesus shepherds you and you must receive His shepherdhood in your life. And it begins with you admitting your need for a shepherd. Admitting that you need the Lord to be everything to you. And we don't often want a shepherd. What, what most people want is not a shepherd. They want emergency services. They want 911. They want to know that there is someone out there that if they call in dire straits, will turn on the sirens and be there in a flash. Most people want that kind of a relationship with God. God, just be there when I need you, but otherwise, stay out of my business. That's where I want you, God. I want to know that when the man upstairs gets called, he answers, but then he leaves me alone and lets me do what I want. But Jesus doesn't shepherd that way. You can't receive the shepherdhood of God and expect that. The shepherdhood of God is a very invasive, intimate, and personal, all up in your business kind of relationship. Jesus wants to be in your life, in every facet of your life. And that's where that term said in the church often, he's either God of all or not God of all or not God at all. That is, the lordship of Jesus is that I'm fully surrendering, surrendering to you as shepherd. Come in fully into my life as a very intimate shepherd into every relationship and parts of my life. But many people aren't ready for that because we live under this illusion of control. We want to maintain control. We don't want Jesus messing up the things in our life that we would like to hold on to. But Jesus, as your shepherd, is going to invade all areas of your life. If Jesus isn't shepherding you, you are being shepherded. Something is influencing you, and your soul will pay the price for this influence of other things. And, and just to say this, like I committed my life to Christ when I was 17 years old. But that doesn't mean that I was fully surrendered for the rest of my days always. This work of surrender to the shepherdhood of God is a constant returning to letting God be shepherd in my life. And, and I want to run us through a quick exercise as we consider and ask the hard question of, is Jesus shepherding your life? Is He being invited in and watching over all the intimate details of your life? So the exercise would be to simply do this. You may want to do this this week as a practice. Um, I would just suggest for you that you write down every major categorical representation of all of your life. Your job, your school, your friendships, your sexual life, your financial life, your recreational life, just everything that represents what, what the elements of you, what you're doing in, in all of life. Write those down and then ask of each one of those areas two questions. First question, am I willing to obey God in everything He wants me to do in this area? So put whatever that area is, your job, your relationships, whatever you're doing with your money, whatever you're doing with your free time, Ask this question of that. Am I willing to obey God in everything He wants me to do in this area? And then secondly, am I willing to thank Him for whatever He is bringing into this area of my life? And if I can't honestly say yes, then I'm not living 
with the shepherdhood of God in every area of my life. So, so the point of life is to constantly be asking the Lord to take over more areas that we have reclaimed for us. And we all are, are prone to reclaim areas of our life and just say, God, I got this. And this exercise helps us to simply look over the, the, the lay of our life and to say, am I fully surrendering in each area? And I, I would suggest that most of us aren't. That there are areas which God would be saying, that's the area that I want you to surrender. And, and the one that really struck me is the second question, am I willing to be thankful for whatever He brings in this area of my life? It's one thing to say, God, you can have whatever you, your way in this area of my life, but then if I don't like what He's doing than to become ungrateful in that arena. One theologian put it this way as it concerns shepherding or the work of God in our lives. He says, the root of all sin is the de-godding of God. Or in John chapter 10, denying the shepherdhood of Jesus in every area of my life. So simply, this is the point of John chapter 10. Jesus is a good shepherd. All others that came before him that come in another way were thieves, robbers, hirelings, wolves. You are being influenced by some shepherd, some influence. And we want to allow the good shepherd to reclaim areas in our life where we have pushed him into the margins. So today is really just a call to, to acknowledge your need for Jesus once again, especially for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time. You need Him now as you did when you first came. Can you say amen to that? You need Him now as much as ever. And life is a constant returning surrender and authority back over to the Good Shepherd Jesus. He's good. He'll lead you in the good way. Read how the psalmist David brags about what it's like to live under this shepherd. Listen to what Jesus says in John 10 is the relationship between the good shepherd and his sheep. He protects us. He lays down his life for us. We recognize his voice when he speaks to us. And so today we just simply come to the Lord in worship and in surrender as we go to the communion table, as we continue our worship service this morning, to simply just say, Jesus, have it all. Jesus, you're my shepherd. Jesus, I acknowledge you in all areas of my life. Let's stand together and we're going to pray. And then we're going to eat and drink communion as we once again invite the Lord to be all for us. Jesus, we want to just pause for a moment having read this passage, having heard the good news of the kind of shepherd you are, and we want to once again release ourselves to your care. So right now, for those of you who do these kinds of things and maybe are even feeling convicted in an area of your life, if you would just take a moment and even take the posture with palms open, hands open, we just do that because it's a symbol, a bodily symbol of receiving from the Lord. Just with hands open, not clinging on or holding on to anything. We pray the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139. Search me, 
and know my way, God. Try my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. So right now, as we're just quiet for a few moments, talk to the Lord. Let him speak to you. Shepherds, speak to us. Are there unsurrendered places? Places where the shepherdhood of Jesus is not actively present. We release that to you, Father. Make us humble, Lord. We give to you unsurrendered places. We surrender our marriages and our money, our jobs and our schooling, our recreation, our sexuality. We invite you to invade and come close and even uncomfortably so. Search us, Lord. Be shepherd, Lord. Drive out wolves. Kick out the hired hands. Defend us from the thief and the robber that will come to kill and steal and destroy. We don't need any more of that in your church, God. Be shepherd over our souls, Lord. We surrender our lives. May God make you humble and surrendered. May you recognize your need for a shepherd, your need for Jesus Christ. 